Broadcasting from WIUX LP Bloomington, this is American Student Radio. I'm Christopher Mawson. Hello, everybody. Here's a question that even a child can answer. I want to be rescued during the last time, and I want to draw myself so I can win. <laughs> Wait, what are we talking about again? Hi, my name is Sophia. What's your name? Hey, I will never girl in my class and named Sophia too. What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, a giant. A giant? You just want to grow up? Yeah. Dad, I want to be a person that, that drives a jet plane. You want to be a jet plane driver? Yeah. A scientist. Well, because at my school one time I actually had this pencil and then I took the eraser out of the pencil. A ladybug. How does that work? I mean, I want to be a cat. Oh, well, how does that work? Because I like kittens. A parrot. Because they get to stay more days than teachers. What about you? What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, do you know what you want to be? Uh, me. You, you be? Do you just want to be you but slightly bigger? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that question gets a little bit difficult as we get older. We have to recalibrate who we want to be, where we want to be, what kind of person we want to be. Well, in sixth grade, I wanted to be cool. I was the new kid in school. I was standing in line for ping pong during recess, and I had a fresh haircut with racing stripes on the sides, brand new pants, and they were a special shade of orange with way too many zippers. I wore them with some bright red Fila tennis shoes, I was feeling like a cool, true, original. But then my classmate, Ben, Ben came up to me and he said, stupid hair, stupid pants, stupid shoes. So I had to recalibrate my vision, think about more important things, realize I'm not going to be cool that day, and grow my definition of what I want to be. This is American Student Radio. The name of this episode is Wanna Be. The first part of the show, we talk about what you want to be, those types of careers you dream of as a child. We have two ballet dancers, an army ranger, and risk takers. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. From Bloom... From... uh, Again, live... live, What is it? Oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. Sometimes what we want to be is influenced by the people around us. Mary became a ballerina because it was what everyone else wanted her to be. But as she got older, she realized that it wasn't for her. Taylor Haggerty has the story. When I was little, people told me I wanted to be a ballerina. But I was shy. So I feel like when people tell you what to think about a lot of things when you're growing up, it makes it hard to know if that's what you think or if that's just what other people think. I was always dancing. So from about age four, I danced every day pretty much. 
a lot of dancing. And I trained at the Kirov Ballet in Washington, D.C. The next summer, I went to Michigan, where I trained with John Magnus. He thought I could be a professional, and also a woman there, Valerie Robin, helped encourage me to really pursue dance. She was just like, you know what, Mary? You just, you need to dance. You are a ballerina. You need to go do this right now. You're getting old. And I was only like 17 (laughs) or 18. I was like, oh, okay. I felt it coming in from lots of people I knew saying that you should be a dancer. But then I was like, well, maybe I do want to be a dancer. And maybe this is just something I would enjoy doing. I love being on stage. In one particular piece, I was a lead and I got taken up into the air by several guys. They lifted me up and it was just a beautiful moment and it was a quiet part of the music and it just was like I was on a cloud. My body reacted so well to the movement and just everything opened and I felt really light and beautiful and strong and it was like my perfect ballerina moment. So what do you think was the hardest part about dancing so much and so frequently? That's what your identity became and that identity is something that you don't fully control because you have people requesting things of you, but at the same time, they're telling you to be unique and show your artistic strength. So to battle that and to find the perfect balance is a struggle. When I was in the midst of it, I didn't realize it at first, but it slowly started to form my identity. I developed some anxiety and I really just became uncertain with where I was. And then on November 17th at like 11, 17 at night, I was like, something has to change. I could not dance another day in my life and I would be perfectly happy. And for a dancer to say that is crazy. If you're going to dance, it has to be your main focus. It has to be everything. And since I said that, I was like, it's set. It's done. I felt really secure with what I wrote. And I come back to that statement when I'm having a hard time. And I think, well, where was I at that point? It also keeps me from dancing again. I have to be honest. And that's something that I'm going to have to work through as I start to dance again more recreationally. It was difficult for everyone. Uh, My teachers and things, they were happy for me and knew I would succeed in whatever I chose to do, which was really nice and in a way humbling. There are definitely days where I struggle when I think about where I could be dancing that makes it kind of sad but I'm really happy where I am now and I think I've gained a lot from my time dancing and I can take that into whatever profession and career I have. It is part of my personal journey um, to dance. I plan to try to dance more and just take it one step at a time because dance 
as it becomes a part of my life again is going to be a different part of my life than how it was when I was dancing seven days a week. What do I want to be? That's a big question. When you're a dancer, people always ask you, what are you going to do after you dance? And they always (laughs) say for you, oh, you're going to be a dance teacher, right? So in my mind, I kind of have that as a, you're not going to do that because everyone thinks you're going to do that. Thank you, Taylor. The music for this piece is Valse Caprice for Piano and Strings, Wedding Cake, Opus 76, as performed by the Birmingham City Orchestra. Our next ballet story, Paul Yoon and Carter Barrett talk to Colin, a ballet student in the Jacobs School of Music. Colin takes, uh, talks about the sacrifices he makes in order to chase his dream. In Korean, a way to ask your friends what they want to do in their future is to ask for their 장래희망. 장래희망 translates to your hope for the future. I really like that. Hope exists when you believe something can happen, and there are many people around us in Bloomington who give up a lot to hold on to these hopes. This week, Carter and I talked to Colin, a dancer. A dancer is the male equivalent of a ballet dancer in the Jacobs School of Music, who is pursuing professional dance. Uh, Hello, uh, my name is Colin Ellis. I am a graduating junior here at Indiana University, and I am a ballet major with an outside field in arts management. Um, Well, with my ballet performance degree, I'm hoping to uh, be part of a ballet company and go through the ranks there. The highest rank is principal, so hopefully be a principal. Uh, someday at a ballet company, uh, perform for a long time, and then using my arts management degree, um, I would aspire to help run a ballet company or a nonprofit that works with ballet. Colin first got the taste of ballet at the age of five when his twin sister invited him to her class, but he didn't really come in until later. Uh, I was... Uh, I danced since I was five, but I think I knew I wanted to really dance when I was... 10 i knew by then i was like committed like okay yeah i want to do this for at least i'm 20 you know because 10 year olds don't think so far in the future um but then when i turned 14 specifically is when i started to go and really see the world through summer intensives and and stuff like that and that's when i knew like okay i really enjoy this i like working with these people and i like what i'm doing so let's make this a career out of this just the other day i found out how much point shoes cost and how often you have to change them So ballet is definitely a passion that is not easy to pursue without a great support staff. I was uh, very fortunate. Um, Both my parents are somewhat artistic, although they aren't in the the, uh, artistic realm of jobs. Uh, My mother actually danced when she was very little, like 5 to 12. And so she always loved ballet. And as for my dad, although he never danced... Um, he loves going to the ballet. He loves classical music. He is a huge advocate of jazz. So uh, I was luckily uh, raised with parents that uh, were really, had open arms <laughs> for a male dancer. <laughs> and dance in general is very demanding of the body. This is Annalisa and Sarah who are working with Colin in the choreography project. I just got my back worked on, so it's feeling okay. Great. But I did have rehearsal okay. earlier, so, so it's, it's not tight. super okay. It was feeling really great, but then, like, because I already had rehearsal, kind of. Of course, your body, I, I 
for some people more common than others is you're always sore somewhere. <laughs> you're always, you're always hurting somewhere and some days it's going to affect you more than others. Um, another one is, um, this applies to a lot of other people as well, but for dancers, especially we are very conscientious of our weight and of for males our strength. So we usually do a lot of extra exercises, but at the same time we have to stretch. So a lot of us, by the end of the day, we do a couple of pushups or we'll do the splits or we'll, uh, you know, go to the gym for another extra couple hours just to work stuff that we wouldn't get in a ballet class to keep ourselves healthy. Is that scary? The possibility of injuring yourself and then not being able to pursue a career? Uh, it's always a dread, but I, I, I like to believe that I'm a forever optimist and no matter uh, what, what sort of happens, I like to always think of, well, well, you know, that just because that happened doesn't mean I can't do this. And I've been very fortunate, uh, knock on wood, wherever wood is, um, <laughs> that chair, uh, that, um, I've yet personally to ever be in an injury at the level where I'm out for more than a couple months. Being a male dancer is definitely a complex issue. And Carter asked a really good question. What are some misconceptions people might have about male dancers? Well, uh, the biggest one, uh, just to get the elephant out of the room, is um, homosexuality. Like we were talking earlier with parents, one of the biggest fears for parents if they find out their son likes dancing is they ridicule them due to, uh, oh, you're be a man, don't be you know a little gay boy, for lack of better words. And I've had friends who've personally gone through situations in high school, especially where it's like they were picked on for, you know, they have their toe shoes, their ballet shoes in their backpack, and uh, they're scolded for being, you know, uh, homosexual. But I've been luckily never, uh, never encountered that, at least in person. No one's said it to my face. But yeah, that's the biggest misconception about male dancers is their sexuality. And Colin had some great words of encouragement for other dancers out there who want to pursue the same dream. Um, I'd say, especially for all the young males out there, um, it's definitely, you know, it's, if it's something that you really enjoy and something that you really do, you just have to be prepared to sacrifice a lot for it. Dancing's not the best paying job in the world, but if you, you know, like they say, um, if you do what you love for your job, you never work a day in your life. So if you truly are committed and you enjoy what you're doing, I say for the young male dancers, keep doing with what you're doing. And even if you don't want it as a career, you've, you're enjoying yourself throughout the time that you're dancing. We want to thank Colin for taking time out of his very busy schedule and talking to us. Uh, he's, he's just so humble to mention this on the interview, but he's just so talented. Oh, that was the sound of my mind exploding. Definitely all the sacrifices that he makes, all the support that he gets, and the love uh, for ballet that he has. Um, it's, it comes through in his dance. And a great, great opportunity to check this out is the choreography project, which will be this month, 27th and 28th, um, at the Buskirk Chumley. Uh, that was my first ballet, and it's um, anything from Bach to Sylvanesso. This was Paul Yoon and Carter Barrett from American Student Radio. Thank you, Paul. That background music was a Tom Waits song, What Keeps Mankind Alive. Now, wannabes can come in all shapes, sizes, and even structures. ASR goes live to reporter Matt Berklin for the almost true story of one of IU's most prominent landmarks, the Sample Gates. Matt? Good afternoon, everyone. This is Matt Berklin here from the Hoosier Flipside, and I'm coming to you from the Sample Gates, 
where this week we would like to take a bit of a deeper, more meaningful look at one of Indiana University's most famous wannabes, the Sample Gates. The gates, which took 88 years to finally be built, still stand as the most useless and incomplete set of gates ever created, and should serve as a reminder to all students that if our favorite limestone structure can make it this far, despite never achieving its dreams, you can too. The idea for the Sample Gates first arose in 1899, when the IU administration realized that for the past 79 years, the campus's western boundary had not been established. Legally, the Indiana University Bloomington campus was considerably larger, stretching all the way to the outer edge of Bloomington, past the Illinois border, through the Great Plains, and finally coming to a rest along the Sierra Nevada mountains. The initial plan was for the gates to signify that boundary, but it was later realized that a simple sidewalk would be cheaper, less intrusive, and in general made a lot more sense. Nonetheless, the idea of the sample gates was born. The next 88 years would see the gates longing for the day when they would be erected to honor old IU, but would be plagued with issues for the aspiring fence. In the 1940s, the United States federal government began developing plans for installing a set of large gates on the edge of the Bloomington campus in an attempt to keep out potential Nazi invaders. This idea was quickly scrapped, however, after the mayor of Bloomington politely pointed out that there would be absolutely no reason for the Germans to ever attack Bloomington, as it contains nothing more than a few thousand college students and some large rocks. Plans to build a gateway were revisited in 1957, following an outbreak of carnivorous mutant squirrels on the campus. Their goal was to protect IU students from the savage rodents, but by the time the plan was approved, 20% of the student population had already been devoured, and the squirrels had subsequently died of alcohol poisoning. The plans to build a gate were nixed yet again, and the gate's dreams of being built would be postponed for the third time since its inception. Things had finally begun looking up for the sample gates in the 1970s, as sufficient funds were secured, permission was granted by the university, and the plans had received full support from the campus population. The gates' dreams, however, were crushed for a fourth time, following the tragic 1973 limestone crisis. The resulting limestone famine left thousands of construction projects dead, and lines for the remaining limestone stretched for miles outside of the quarries, resulting in the gate construction being pushed back once more. Finally, in the year 1987, it appeared as though the struggles of waiting had been worth it for the infant gates. With all of the necessary factors to design a beautiful memorial for the iconic Indiana University in place, construction was finally undertaken and the gates almost entirely completed. Unfortunately, when the designers went to sit and discuss how they would attach a door to the massive structure that they had just completed, they were unable to find any place to sit and have this discussion, after all of the school's chairs had been tossed across campus by a furious Bobby Knight. This unfortunate bout of fury by Coach Knight meant that although the gates had finally been erected, they would be sadly left unfinished and have remained so to this day. After over a century since the original idea emerged, the sample gates continue to stand as a symbol for those who wish to achieve their dreams, despite the fact they clearly never will. Having survived vandals, drunkards, squelching summers, harsh winters, and 28 years of Alpha Tau Omega, the sample gates are a beautiful example of how your dreams can carry you through almost anything, even if they will literally never come true. But maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe the sample gates are okay just the way they are, as what better way is there to symbolize Indiana University than a group project that was procrastinated on for 88 years and still never finished? This has been a special presentation brought to you by the Hoosier Flipside. Thank you for listening, and we will see you on the Flipside. Thanks, Matt, for that fascinating look at the history of the Sample Gates. If you'd like to hear more true-sounding news and stories, you can follow them on Facebook and find them on Twitter as at Hoosier Flipside. 
Everyday monotony gets boring. That's why people search for that adrenaline rush. They're able to be something they want to be, even if they only want to be it for a couple of minutes. American student radio producer Casey Ross took to the streets of Bloomington and asked people one question. What's the craziest thing you've ever done? My question, okay, so I'm doing a story for American Student Radio on WIUX, and I'm doing a story about adrenaline. The theme of the week is wannabe, so I'm doing a story about people who want to, like, do something super crazy. And so my question is, what is the craziest thing you've ever done? Um, so when I was studying abroad in Denmark, my friends all went to get tattoos on a Tuesday, and I got my nipples pierced. So when I was 17 on New Year's Eve, me and my two best friends took a Greyhound bus to New York City to see the ball drop. And we watched the ball drop, we went back to the train station at like 5am, and then we went home. Our parents didn't know. Okay, so when I was 13, I was at a park with my friend, and um, there were baby swings there. And I was just like, I'm small enough to fit in that. And she's like, no you're not. And so I had to. And so I got in, and I got stuck. And I couldn't get out on my own, and, like, her and I tried so hard to get out, and, like, I couldn't. I was stuck in there, and my mom drives by, and she gets out of the car, and she's like, Haley, what the are you doing? Like, get out of that swing. And then at one point, I have my feet on her thighs, like, trying to pull down the swing, and we ended up having to call non-emergency services, and they had to cut me out with the jaws of life. It was just a bump in a flight and we stayed in London for an extra night, so we went to another country. We stayed in the hotel room because we didn't have any clothes or anything, so we just ate food at the hotel there, and then it turns out the food tasted like crap, so we barely ate any of it, then we just went to bed, and then we walked around the hotel, but there wasn't really much, and it was freezing outside, so then we just went to the airport the next morning. was I went to North Korea for like two hot minutes but like the way that they get you there is so weird so they pile you up on a bus which is like first of all why are we taking a tour bus to go to a communist country that's a little weird then they're like okay you can take pictures here but if you take pictures when we say you can't take pictures like you're gonna be in big trouble like you're gonna get arrested kind of trouble so then they take you to a pavilion where they make you watch this whole video about like why North Korea is terrible and like the whole history of the DMZ which is the demilitarized zone uh, between South and North Korea because they're technically still at civil war which is weird to think about because it's been a civil war for like 60 years so then they make you sign basically a death warrant that says if you get shot while in the DMZ like it is nobody's fault Um, you can't wear biker jackets you can't wear leggings you can't wear anything with holes in your jeans you can't point you can't smile you can't laugh and you cannot talk to anybody so they pile you back on the bus and they're like okay we're going to take you to the conference rooms. So the conference rooms straddle, like, the 37th parallel, which is the line dividing North and South Korea. So they take you in there, and then 
You walk into the conference room, and then they're like, okay, if you're on this side of the room, you're technically in North Korea. You can go ahead and take pictures now. So there are South Korean guards within the conference room, and they're just standing there. Like, they're not moving. They're not, it doesn't even look like they're breathing. And you're like, okay, so I guess I'm going to, like, take a picture of this dude while I'm here, and I'm in North Korea for two minutes. And then your tour guide says, okay, we got to go. Go now, now, now. And then she's like, come here. Come over to this side. It's safer in South Korea. So they pile you back onto the bus, and they're like, all right, let's go to a gift shop, and that's it. So Emily has jumped off of the quarry. So can you tell me what, what, like, who came up with this idea? Like, how did that even happen? Okay, well, it was over the summer, and some of my friends, I mean, it's a Bloomington staple, so we just kind of decided that we had to do it, and they talked me into it. I didn't want to be a chicken. There was this guy that I really liked, and I was like, I have to impress him. Like, I can't be this embarrassing, non-badass chick, so... Like, I'm not going to die, so I might as well just get it over with. We got lost on the way to the quarry, which was great. And then we went into the wrong way, so we spent, like, an hour trying to get the, to the quarry. And it um, it was, like, the easiest walk if you did it right. So that was exciting. And then there were some people already there who were jumping, but we had to climb up to the spot where you jump. And then you look down, and it's, like, 20 feet to the ground. And it felt like 50, I'm just saying, but it was terrifying. And then, I don't know, even standing, like, really close to it, it was frightening. And I was pretty sure someone was going to have to push me, but then I jumped. And then I hit the ground. I hit the water. And I tried to swim. It was very shocking. Like, at first I, like, froze when I first hit the water. I was like, I don't know what to do now. And then the second time I jumped, I couldn't keep my eyes closed. So I hit the water with my eyes still open. It was exhilarating. And I guess it's like a good story. So I don't know if I would ever do it again, but you did maybe. It I did it once. Yeah. It was important. And then we have heroes. Many people want to be the person who saves the day for one heavy machinery mechanic. And father of producer Emily Miles, his first plan didn't work out, but as you'll hear, perhaps it's the best way. Tell me if you see oil Okay. <laughs> years old, live in Evansville, Indiana. What did dad want to be when um, you first met each other in high school? He always wanted to be an army ranger. I guess through at least my high school years, I, I figured I was going to join the army. And why did you want to do that? Then I thought it was just really something cool to do, but I think now that I look back, I, I see the holes in my plans as far as I just really didn't want to have to plan for a future and knowing if I went into the army it would just be planned for me. Partially my stepfather was a drill instructor so I kind of had that in the background anyway. And it you never you never think the army's going to turn you down. How did you feel about him going into the army in the first place? I really didn't feel one way or the other, you know, you just kind of go with the flow. We both grew up in um, households where 
um, you didn't go to college after you got out of high school, you got a job and you went to work and that's the way that it was. So I really didn't know how to feel about it. I didn't know anybody who had gone through it at that point. I don't remember ever wanting to be something, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you, you got out of school, you went to work somewhere, you went to Zenith or Whirlpool or someplace like that. And mm -hmm. that's what you did. That was our reality, the way we grew up. Nobody went to college. Do you know anything about, um, like, sort of grandma's uh, stance on when dad wanted to go into the army? I'm sure that she, well, I know for a fact she didn't want him to. She didn't want either one of the boys to do it. And grandpa said that if, uh, if they went to war, he was dragging them both to Canada. And that was, you know, and he had been through two tours in Vietnam. So that was, you know, he did not want them going. The recruiting part was very easy because they're, they talk to you like a regular guy and they just, they explain how they can make you a good career and a good future. And, and, uh, you know, they, they actually, you know, a good recruiter like I had talks to you like he's, he's your friend and giving you good advice. And, uh, could you expound a little bit on like what the specific fields you wanted to go into were? Well, I was trying to join the, uh, airborne Rangers, mm -hmm. which, cause you know, to me that was like the elite aspect of the army and you always want to shoot high and then uh and then the actual the my recruiter was steering me towards a great career field in it afterwards and that was in uh, biomedical repair which is fixing hospital machines because he and he had showed me in the newspaper even that day there was like five or six ads wanting people to come work on hospital machines to work in that field he said this is a growing industry this is where you want to be so i was actually signing up for the uh for the fields that I wanted and the part of the, you know, the military I wanted to, and my testing was good and all I had to do was pass the physical. Then you go to the physical and what happened? Well, I found out I wasn't as prime a candidate as I thought I was. They, they were able to, I mean, I was able to go through most of it without any problem because I was actually fairly fit. The, uh, but I'd had a, a, a back defect from birth that hadn't I didn't really know about and the when they take your x-rays they throw it up and they put me on this bench to talk to the doctor and that's when he he told me that uh, he wasn't comfortable with signing off on me jumping out of helicopters and just what what was the back defect was I was actually born with too many vertebrae and did he go into like why that would be a problem well, because the uh, the fact that there's extra vertebrae meant that the disc spacing was too slight to where, you know, sudden impacts or jars could easily damage the back, he thought. All right, so you go to the, to the um, doctor that day, and then you find this out. What was your immediate thought? Like, I can't be an airborne ranger. I think it was a mix of, well, crap, now what do I do? And maybe even a little bit of relief because it was still kind of scary, the idea of actually, you know, joining the Army and, you know, being put into a, into that spot. What did you do? Well, when I got home, the recruiter took me home that day. Uh, there was a letter on the table that had come, o come over the weekend that uh, was recruiting letter for the Nashville Auto Diesel College. I opened that letter and said, huh, all right. That's what I'll do. Okay. 
and if somebody said you're going to be a mechanic what would you have said that wouldn't have surprised me much you know my real father was something of a mechanic he worked you know in when he was in the uh, marines and uh and he was a tool and die guy afterwards and i said you know i'd always thought that i was you know able to work on my own car or you know something i thought i could build an engine for my truck and you know i didn't have any knowledge or any actual skill set to do any of that at the time but i'd always thought i could so you know it, if you'd have told me i was going to be a mechanic i'd have i'd have been cool with that cuz you know i thought that was a cool job you've been working at rudd for how long now almost 32 years be as a person even going ahead from here mm -hmm. I, I'd, I'd like to be I'd like to be that guy that takes care of his own you know I'd like to be that guy that that doesn't need other people to help him along you know out to to be the one who's saved up his own money makes his own money does things for himself and doesn't rely on on handouts and kindness to to survive as much as I really hated Nashville Auto Diesel College when I was there, and as much as I can't really say I've loved my job throughout the years, I also look around and know that I've done pretty well. You know, we're we're fairly comfortable. I've, you know, it's it has not been a bad life, and I would be really way too scared to roll the dice to see if I could make a better one, because I think I've done pretty well and I would probably tell that 17 year old me hey just suck it up and do it you know because it'll get you where it'll get you where you you know really kind of want to be you know in in the long run Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast from WIUX 99.1 FM every Sunday at noon. In this episode, you've already heard a bunch of stories about wannabes. We decided to ask people on IU's campus about who they wanted to be. A lot of our answers were pretty typical. My answer is pretty cliche. I probably have to say my mom. My mom's someone that I've gotten a lot closer to. Um, my dad. Uh, he's a really hard worker and... Um, I guess that's what I want to be. Uh, I would say both my parents. Um, my mom. Um, she's just very passionate and energetic about everything she does, and she does everything in such, like, a loving way. Others were a bit more specific. Taylor Swift. <laughs> Excellent, and why? Um, because she's nice to everybody, and she's so cool and so talented, and her fashion sense is awesome, and she has an awesome boyfriend named Calvin Harris. Uh, do I have to know them? No, no. Uh, probably Robert Kennedy. And why is that? Courage. 
The first person that comes to mind is Maggie Scudder. She is another IU um, comedy student. She does stuff with the University Twits, and I just think she's so funny. I don't, I don't know why, but just she's the only one that comes to mind. And some were incredibly inspiring. Um, I want to be someone that changes the world. Excellent. And and what's your plan? <laughs> My plan um, is to continue to get to know as many people as possible and understand their stories and their backgrounds so I can continue to maintain and build like lifelong relationships that and, and hopefully have some sort of impact on their lives. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and our website, americanstudentradio.org. Now, back to the show. Our last two stories involve our idols, our inspirations, who we want to be. When ASR reporter Tristan Fitzpatrick was in middle school, he was the film critic for the school newspaper. It was his job in journalism and his early writings. They were influenced by uh, popular film critic Roger Ebert. Tristan pays tribute to his idol, who helped us understand the magic of the movies and what they mean to us. I'm Roger Ebert, film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. It was thanks to Roger Ebert that I fell in love with the movies. Ebert was the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times for over 46 years, and he became the first film critic ever to win the Pulitzer Prize for criticism. But it was on the show Sneak Previews, in which he and Chicago Tribune film critic Gene Siskel reviewed movies every week and gave them a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down rating, that Ebert became a household name in American film culture. What was it that made Ebert so memorable? Part of it was that his reviews were honest and friendly. It didn't feel like you were reading a review from an academic, for example, when you read his work. Take his review of Ingmar Bergman's 1966 drama, Persona, for example. The film, for lack of a better word, is complicated. It's a story of a nurse taking care of an actress who has suddenly become silent and can no longer speak. But Ebert makes the movie easy to understand, because he describes the film to you as if you were a good friend. He would later say that the key to writing film criticism was simply to focus on what you saw and how it affected you. Don't fake it. When describing the opening to the movie, Ebert wrote, At first, the screen is black. Then, very slowly, an area of dark gray transforms itself into blinding white. This is light projected through film onto the screen, the first basic principle of the movies. Ebert tells us that the beginning of the film is important because it is symbolic of film itself and how it can bring knowledge and reason and power into the world all on its own merits. All wings report in. Red 10 standing by. Red 7 standing by. Red 3 standing by. Red 6 standing by. Red 9 standing by. Red 2 standing by. Red 11 standing by. Red 5 standing by. His review of Star Wars in 1977 is similarly meaningful because of the way he describes the experience of seeing the film for the first time. He wrote, Every once in a while, I have what I think of as an out-of-the-body experience at a movie. When the ESP people use a phrase like that, they're referring to the sensation of the mind actually leaving the body and spiriting itself off to China or Peoria or a galaxy far, far away. When I use the phrase, 
I simply mean that my imagination has forgotten it is actually present in a movie theater and thinks it's up there on the screen. In a curious sense, the events in the movie seem real, and I seem to be a part of them. In this way, Ebert perfectly captures what Star Wars does to us as an audience. It makes us forget that we're in a theater. We're at home watching a film. For about two hours, it feels like we are actually with Luke Skywalker as he leads a brave and noble team of rebel fighters against the evil Galactic Empire. You shall love whether you like it or not. Emotions, they come and go like clouds. What I like most about Ebert's reviews, however, is that he didn't lose his childlike sense of wonder towards the movies he was reviewing. The last film he reviewed before his death, Terrence Malick's 2013 drama To the Wonder, is about a couple who move from France to Oklahoma and about a priest going through an existential crisis. The subject matter is complicated, once again, but Ebert asks many important questions of the film to help us understand it. In his review, he said, A more conventional film would have assigned a plot to these characters and made their motivations more clear. Malik, who is surely one of the most romantic and spiritual of filmmakers, appears almost naked here before his audience a man not able to conceal the depth of his vision. Well, I asked myself, why not? Why must a film explain everything? Why must every motivation be spelled out? Aren't many films fundamentally the same film, with only the specifics changed? Aren't many of them telling the same story? Seeking perfection, we see what our dreams and hopes might look like. We realize they come as a gift through no power of our own, and if we lose them, isn't that almost worse than ever having had them in the first place? It was then that I realized that Ebert's reviews were powerful gifts, too. Without them, we wouldn't be able to understand how movies can reveal more information about ourselves and our places in the world. From Bloomington, I'm Tristan Fitzpatrick. Thank you, Tristan. Ebert passed away three years ago on April 4th, 2013. But his reviews and his love of movies still provide valuable insight for readers of all backgrounds. When I meet successful people, I hope their brilliance and attraction rubs off on me, like I absorb their superpowers. It's an honor and a reality check rolled into one. Well, this week, Hutton Honors College brought in Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jhumpa Lahiri, personally introducing many people to their idol, many of which are American student radio producers. A room full of wannabes attended this event, they want to be successful writers, win the Pulitzer, want to be talented and recognized for it, because who doesn't want that? Sheila Ragavandran takes us there right now. She was right there. That's Sarah, our producer who's pretty stoked because she just caught a glimpse of author Jhumpa Lahiri as she went up the stairs. It's Tuesday morning, and Sarah and I are at Hutton Honors College about to have a question-and-answer breakfast session with Lahiri, who is kicking off the Many Worlds, One Globe lecture series that celebrates Hutton's 50th anniversary. Lahiri is the author of some of my favorite books, such as The Namesake and Interpreter of Maladies, and has received the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, the Penn Hemingway Award, and many others. Basically, she's insanely successful, and I just felt like a small, wide-eyed mouse in her presence. 
She spoke at the Wittenberger Auditorium Monday afternoon, but Tuesday morning's breakfast was what we were really hyped about, getting to talk to someone that we aspire to be. I sat with our producer, Sophia, in Hutton's great room. We actually have, like, a good amount of ASR people here, which is... Yeah, great. yeah, and our very own Sarah Panville is... A student is at the, host. She's a student host at the main table. <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> a seat at the speaker's table is highly coveted, especially today. It's the chance to sit right next to your idol. We weren't allowed to record Lahiri's question and answer session, but she explained her appreciation for both short stories and novels, her intense relationship with Italian language, and her cultivation of identity. After the breakfast, Sarah, our producer Stephen, and I talked about our fascination with Lahiri, and Sarah boiled it all down to one question. Why do we want to be Jhumpa Lahiri? Like, I would love to be Jhumpa Lahiri. I mean, at the same time, you know, you are yourself. You can only really ever be yourself, but... Like, what, what is it about her that we want to emulate, we want to be, do you think? You know. Well, <laughs> well no, I know that there's the first kind of dumpy part of it, which is um, my friend and I talk a lot about how it's stupid that we're kind of attracted to titles and accolades. It's easy to say I want to be like Jhumpa Lahiri because she has, like, practically every literary prize you can get, and she got him very young. Um, but that while intellectually we know that that's not what is in the longest run fulfilling it's still attractive that's my first instinct with it and it's a really stupid one and you know when you're self-aware you're like that's i mean all of my experiences tell me that that's not what's actually fulfilling and that's not what sustains you it really isn't um and uh so while it's the first instinct it is also the most primal and stupid one (laughs) um and I guess every caveman wants to get a Pulitzer. Lahiri's titles and accolades are proof of her success. And like Stephen said, we're all attracted to that attention. I think our generation in particular, just the idea of celebrity, we have taken that and run with it. Um, For some reason, fame is just very appealing, even though we hear horror stories about it. Stephen said that the other reason we want to be Lahiri is because of her fearlessness. Yeah, I think it's that willingness to engage with the world in a in a in a strange way um and the bravery to devote your life basically to a career that is not a career what is impressing about being a writer is the willingness to do it especially now sarah said she's also drawn by lahiri's motivation she decided as an adult to go out and learn a language and like she took the time and she moved across Mm -hmm. the world to do it like, that's dedication. She seems like a very dedicated person. Yeah. I feel like that's a quality, like, I really admire in her. We also got to talk to Charlene Brown, the extracurricular activities director for Hutton. She talked to us about the speakers Hutton brings in for events like these and what she hopes students take from them. It's wonderful to meet these people and know how, how textured and rich their lives are. They're not just that person who wrote that book. They're that person who lives this broader life, who has parents, who has children, who interacts with them. And so it's just there's so much to gather. Yeah. And that none of them have ever, um, none of them ever pretend to know what success actually means or looks like <laughs> or how to get there. Every single one will basically get asked the question, how do I get to where you're at? And they'll all say there's no one single path. Like, I have no idea. Well, it's, it's so interesting how often they have not gone in a straight path. Mm-hmm. Your generation is asked, I think more than some of the previous generations, but certainly a lot. Um, 
what are you going to be doing when you graduate? What are you going to be doing 10 years down the road? What are you going to do at the peak of your career? Those are just standard questions. And what's striking is how many of these people, could, if they answered that question at your age, would not have answered it as to what they are. They've, they've found something else. Being able to meet Jhumpa Lahiri and other Jhumpa Lahiris, other highly successful people that we want to be, is really, really cool. It just adds to the joy of living to be able to have met her, to think about her, to talk about her. The song you're listening to is called Diversity by Business Failure. For American Student Radio from Indiana University in Bloomington, I'm Sheila Raghavendran. Thank you, Sheila. I'm Christopher Mawson for American Student Radio. That's all we have for you today. We're a club for audio storytelling, and we broadcast live every Sunday at noon on 99.1 WIUX Bloomington. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash American Student Radio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com slash Lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org. 